Global, sparking innovative thoughts. Welcome to another episode of Texas Global Podcast. I'm Chawa Rakyong Tiranon Erpupe, the Texas Global Content Editor. And we're going to talk about, yet again, what is expected for the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia. And uh, we have with us right now someone who has been with Texas in our past conferences. And we're very interested to see his perception into the market and uh, how the ecosystem is according to his uh, view. Uh, we have Peter Kemps, the principal of Sequoia of Singapore. He is responsible for establishing and managing Amazon's relations with the startup and venture capital community in Asia. And he engages frequently with um, leading incubators and VCs across the region, helping them to create value in their portfolio, leveraging the AWS platform. Now he's been in Southeast Asia for about eight years now, and he's worked really closely with the ecosystems in Singapore um, and spent lots of time in Manila, Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, and Seoul, Taipei, and Hong Kong. Sadika, hello, Peter. Hi there, how are you? Oh, good. It's good to see you. I know that we're far apart and usually, you know, we've used to, we've been used to seeing you in Bangkok, one on one face to face. But this is, of course, the new way. Um, first question definitely ha- will have to be about 2020. It's a year that everyone remembers. And now, of course, 2021. What do you think the investor outlook has been for startups during 2020 first? Let's talk about 2020 during the initial and, you know, the continuation of the COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah, sure. No, let, let, me, let me talk about that. But by the way, let me, let me first say, you, you, just, uh, you just introduced me and, and, and described what I did before Sequoia. Um, oh, okay. And I've joined after, after the time in Amazon Web Services that you described. I've spent uh, the last over six years at, at Sequoia Capital. Uh, focused on on Series A, B, and 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 primarily seed investment more recently with with Surge as well. Uh, and within that capacity within Sequoia, but even before, I've obviously seen the the ecosystem uh, evolve and 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 emerge in a way. Um, uh, and in that context, obviously, 2020 has been a very interesting year. Uh, I think for every industry uh, and for all the startups that we've seen. Um, I think it's been interesting, like Sequoia Capital in the US, our, our colleagues over there very early on during COVID uh, published a, uh, a memo, if you like, mm-hmm. like Swan memo as it's often referred to, uh, basically urging founders very early on during the, 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 the pandemic that was just emerging back then more globally, um, that every startup basically had to reevaluate all their assumptions and basically go back to the, to the drawing board, right? Like is, you know, is our product still needed? Is our business model, our pricing, our go-to-market? Like you have to basically assess everything. And we even provided a matrix in terms of how you should think about it and, and, and how you should think about streamlining your business depending on the impact on, mm-hmm. on your top line revenue. And uh, we've seen many startups take that approach. And um, what we've obviously seen is that uh, some startups were super heavily hit, right? When you're in travel, as you can imagine, where you're in, 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 in offline retail, uh, you know, we've seen some companies, you know, you know, lose 80% of their revenue, right? 
-hmm. And imagine if you have a, a solid, like fixed cost base, like what that does to your to your bottom line and to your your burn, etc. Uh, we've seen other companies come out somewhat, you know, somewhat neutral. Uh, and then there's obviously a lot of companies that have have actually risen, right? And you yes. know, whether whether it's been whether it's been food delivery or actually any any e-commerce uh, or even SaaS businesses where maybe during the absolute peak of the of the pandemic, companies were holding back their budgets and were not spending. But in the back of their minds, they were realizing, oh gosh, like we've spoken a lot about digital transformation, but actually we've been too slow, we've been too late. Uh, we should focus more on automation. We should focus more on software, on software as a service. And that specifically in markets where, where COVID uh, got a bit more under control in, in Q4 or even now in Q1, um, they start to unlock those budgets and are actually spending more and you see companies bounce back a lot. Um, and so it's been interesting to see a, how the market responded uh, and, and specifically again in, in, in Q4, how some companies quickly, um, you know, got back to the same or better, you know, top line numbers than, than before COVID. But what happened during COVID is because people, you know, had read that black swan memo or had otherwise realized how serious this was, um, many of them took that as an opportunity to streamline their business. Sometimes, unfortunately, uh, that you know was accompanied by uh, by, by firing of people and, and streamlining the organization, reducing headcount, uh, cutting other costs. Many companies reduced their their office footprint or or even cancel their office leases altogether. Um, but as a result, what you saw is that towards Q4, companies on the top line started to emerge better, but at the bottom line, much better. We've seen many companies actually reach profitability towards Q4 because they've used, like they often say, like never let a crisis go on, uh, on, on use, right? Always yes. leverage a crisis. And, and companies did that a lot. And we've seen companies come out much stronger with a much more healthy profit and loss account with much better bottom line. And I think that is kind of like the silver lining. Um, I think the challenge, frankly, is that um, it is still up and down in many markets, right? Uh, like Australia was out of it and then went back into a lockdown in Melbourne. I think Auckland and New Zealand is now back in a lockdown. We've seen Vietnam go up and down. Um, yeah. um, I guess Thailand to some extent as well. And so it's still very fragile balance. And you still see some countries getting better, but other countries... Uh, are still still struggling or still up and down. Um, and that leads to, to a fair amount of, of insecurity and uncertainty for many startups that we work with. Um, and so it's not fully back up yet, but there's interesting signs of recovery in, across our portfolio for sure. Yeah, I, I, I can get that. And, and that is, I think, being felt across the board. I mean, before we had kind of like nationwide global lockdown and it, 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 we kind of had a sense of, you know, what the situation was like. But now it's um, a bit different because you really have to always be on top on, of the situation. Each country has their own um, stages of recovery, uh, waves of COVID-19, and, uh, and also that affects ultimately at the end, you know, how companies are going to, you know, open up again or, or do their business. I, I want to go from the overview to, to, to I'm going to start with sectors and then I'm going to go towards, you know, the startups as a unit. Um, you know, we talked about earlier the sectors that were attractive 
during the crisis. Um, and it's been said before, like from the likes of the latest report, I think Monks Hill just came out saying that the top sectors to, for them in the past year has been um, health care, health tech, edutech. Um, I think SAS, as you just mentioned, and um, I, I, other, other sectors. I want to know more about your perspective as to what were the sectors that you think really benefited more, you know, you mentioned that a little bit uh, that from this crisis, and do you think that these sectors will continue growing post COVID nineteen? Uh, yes and yes. I think I think um, the, the the main beneficiaries in a way of COVID, if you like, even though it's somewhat sad, um, are, are obviously the essential services industries that can move online. So education mm -hmm. moving online, uh, events. Uh, to some extent, moving a line, companies like Airmead in, in the Sequoia portfolio or, or Hopin in, um, uh, in the West that has grown very rapidly, uh, companies uh, that uh, are driven by, uh, by, by education and, and ad tech, as you mentioned. Um, some healthcare services, not all of them, we've also seen you know, healthcare platforms where it's more about physical doctor's appointments or bookings, for example. Like if you cannot see the doctor because it's not safe, then you don't do it, right? Or... Uh, but stuff that you can provide online uh, is obviously benefiting. Uh, and what you see, and I think Facebook did an interesting research about uh, specifically around food delivery. And I think, don't quote me on the numbers, but they said something like 80% like of the people that, have, that they interviewed um, had started using food delivery services much more than before. Mm. And 43% or something like that said that their, their increased use would sustain post-COVID. And maybe not as much but it's just generally driven things to a higher level. And, and, and the same could be said for, for many e-commerce services. So uh, you know, companies in Singapore like Redmart or, or others have obviously benefited a lot. And I think quite a bit of that will, uh, will continue post-COVID as well. Yeah. And so yeah. in general, if you think about yeah. the Southeast Asia market, uh, obviously a lot is driven by e-commerce because e-commerce also drives logistics. It also drives payments. And in generally, it's a market that is most buoyant on the back of consumer demand and consumer services more so than, than B2B. So I think from that point of view, many companies actually have, have benefited and the, and the interest in the Southeast Asia as a, as a startup market has continued. Um, we've seen towards Q3 last year and Q4 to some extent that some funds uh, you know, started being less active on the funding side. When it comes to Sequoia and Surge, we've been, we've been full on uh, and there's not been any slowdown in investing. And what's interesting is there's many founders where if you now ask me, like, have you ever met them in person? I can't even, I don't even know whether I've met them in person because it's, it's just it's so normal to just invest on the back of, of Zoom meetings and, and, and exchanging data and whatnot. Um, so from that point of view, I think the, um, the, the impact on the, on the Southeast Asia market um, you know, there's obviously a blip, but again, just like some of the examples at the startup level itself that I mentioned earlier, I think the ecosystem as a whole is coming out stronger on the back of this. Which is yeah, de yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting to see what it's going to be like after you have that recovery uh, from the outbreak, because, um, you know, uh, obviously it's not go going to go to the way it was before. But then at the other on the other hand, it it's not going to be 100 percent digital. Right. So there will be some sort of integration of technology 
and uh, you know everyday uh, work or daily livelihoods occurring at the same time. And it's very interesting as well as you know you say you know e-commerce that has been a very big boom in Southeast Asia, and that is of course influencing fintech development. Uh, everything uh, very much integrated. Um, if I could ask, like, what is the top sector, you know, that is of interest to you right now for the rest of 2021? Uh, which one would it be out of the ones that we've talked about? Sorry, which sectors? Yeah, which sector? Um, listen, it, it's, it's hard to mention one sector, right? I, I think what you see in general in Southeast Asia, COVID or not, uh, the market is not deep enough to, to say, oh, we're only doing this sector or whatever, right? And, and so... Um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing, we continue to see interesting things in, in commerce and social commerce. We continue to see interesting things in logistics, uh, like COVID has, has laid bare a lot of inefficiency in, 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 in supply chain and lack of redundancy in that supply chain, not being able to be as local, et cetera. Uh, so that is an area that we continue to, to, be, uh, to, be, to be looking into. Uh, we've done a lot of investments across India and Southeast Asia in, in, in ad tech. Uh, companies like CoLearn in, in Indonesia or an academy in Baidu's in India. And so that is something that we've invested in a lot and will continue to do. Um, um, you know, FinTech as well as, as you see banks and their <clears throat> understatement, but suboptimal user experience uh, lead to a lot of opportunity for, for wealth management, for, for insurance, et cetera. So we invested in companies like, like Koala on the insurance side in, in Indonesia. Uh, and, and, and these these markets continue to have a lot of opportunity for um, you know for, for companies to emerge and, and market cap to be created. Okay, um, let's uh, take a look at the startup itself. As you said, uh, in the the starting stages or the initial stages of uh, COVID nineteen um, and its outbreak, uh, you said in America uh, there was a, a need to 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 get startups to actually, as you said, reassess reevaluate how they approach their company. Um, can you compare the strategies taken by each comp by companies like before COVID and now after COVID? How drastically has it changed or, or are the fundamentals in building up your business and your startup is, is still there? Yeah, listen, I think, I think frankly, uh, I've seen some companies in, 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 in Asia uh, react much stronger and faster, um, partly driven, by the way, by, by, by obviously governments that took, that took like lockdowns like we've seen in, in Singapore or in Malaysia or in other parts of the region. We've not seen in the U.S. or we've, we've only very lately seen in, in Europe. And so the, the impact, I think, has been more felt by some of the startups here and they've, they've taken more action. So if you were to compare, I think that's, that's a fair statement. So... Um... What, what would, if you were talking to a startup like before COVID and now after COVID, how would it be different? Yeah, listen, I think, I think, I think one, of, one of the trends that, we, we, that I haven't addressed before, but what started to happen at the end of 19 is, and on the back of uh, some IPOs in the US that didn't go well, on the back of specifically WeWork that in the end didn't even IPO, um, People had seen that there were a lot of companies that had, we always talk within Square about you know, bits versus atoms, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and bits scale well and normally have higher gross margin. But there were a lot of businesses that were more atom heavy, whether that was Uber or WeWork or Peloton or whatever. Um, some of them phenomenal businesses, obviously. 
but not software, not the same level of scalability, uh, higher cost structures, lower gross margin. And despite that, the companies were always seeing very uh, high uh, valuations and a very strong focus on growth despite everything and at the cost of everything. And as a result, burn was really high and people looked only at, at, at growth and less at, at, at unit economics. On the back of some of those IPOs I mentioned earlier and, and some of those fallouts, if you like, um, the ecosystem, the investor landscape started to change a bit and said, let's focus a bit more on unit economics, right? And let's not be okay with incredibly high customer acquisition cost, high CAC, um, high burn, et cetera, et cetera. But let's be more, more prudent and more careful. Uh, and let's focus on that more. And so that started to happen. It started to influence the conversations between investors and startups a lot more. It wasn't just like, oh, my GMV or my disbursement or origination or whatever, like top line metric that had no bearing on revenue, let alone gross margin and contribution margin. That started to change a bit. Then when COVID hit, that only like made that sentiment and that move even stronger where we're now saying like, you know what? We don't know how your top line is going to be. Um, you have to manage for risk. You have to manage for downside. If your unit economics are, uh, you know, are not in a strong position, you know, this might be extra challenging for you. Right. And so we'd seen some companies where in, 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 uh, in 2019, uh, we'd already cautioned them. We already worked with them to, to lower their burn and, and, and get their, their P&L in, in shape. Um, they, I wouldn't say sailed through COVID, but they, they dealt with it much better. They had much less issues, less companies that still had a bloated like cost structure, uh, unit economics that, that weren't really working, et cetera. They struggled much more and they had to take much more, more, more strong measures during COVID. Yeah, that's very insightful indeed. Um, now let's take a look at the markets in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, we've seen you've been very active in uh, various countries, Indonesia, for example. Um, but during during 2020, um, just as I asked about what was the main focus for the sectors, I, I'd like to ask you what which countries uh, were the top interest for you, uh, and also perhaps maybe. Was it a change or a shift in, in how th things developed prior to COVID-19 and then afterwards in, in how the ecosystems developed and, and how, as you mentioned, how the government um, support for the startups, uh, did it change or uh, sure. did it remain uh, the same? Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, it's interesting. Listen, I think if you look at the U.S., and I'm not sure if many people are familiar with this dynamic, but like. Um, many companies incorporate in, in Delaware, right? That's like your, like many startups, they, they launch there for all sorts of like your tax and regulatory reasons. So they, they started Delaware C Corp. So mm -hmm. you, you, you incorporate in Delaware, you raise money in Silicon Valley, in Menlo Park specifically, where many of the VCs are located. If you think about Singapore, you can think about them being both Delaware and Menlo Park for Southeast Asia. We often oh. see startups from Vietnam, from Philippines, from Thailand, and we ask like where you're incorporated in Singapore, not because we ask them to, because they realize for themselves that that's smart. And part of that is obviously driven by, by government support and other schemes and et cetera, et cetera. But on the back of that, we've obviously seen a lot of startups in Singapore. And uh, if you look at a market like Singapore, um, great for many reasons, but obviously a very small domestic market. Uh, and so our viewpoint has always been in, in, in Singapore, you had to be a regional or a global business to, to scale. But in markets like Indonesia, the market is so large that you can build very large businesses domestically. So if you look at Tokopedia, 
um, that you know is reported to be worth you know many billions, or Gojek, same, or Traveloka, same. Um, they're all uh, very large. Like obviously, Tokopedia is, is only in Indonesia. Traveloka is, and, and, and Gojek have, have some business outside, but still are very you know, largely driven by by Indonesia. Um, so a market like that, due to its sheer population size, uh, GDP, GDP per capita, um, you know, adoption of technology these days, etc., um, you know, has you know has led to a lot of investment from from investors overall, including from Sequoia, um, and I think with other markets in Southeast Asia, um, and including Thailand, including Philippines, including Vietnam. You know, their market size is obviously significantly different than, 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 than Indonesia, but also like much bigger than, than, than Singapore uh, with a GDP per capita that kind of like differs a bit. Um, and so for the longest time, we felt that in those markets, um, you know, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, um, like in Singapore, you would have to build a business that is regional and global. Mm. I think right now, if you start thinking, uh, with a more long-term lens, you can imagine those markets in five or 10 years to be large enough in certain sectors, at least, to create very large companies. And so uh, there's a couple of investments made through search, for example, companies like Twoxy in the pharmaceutical space in Vietnam, or Tilio doing like FMCG uh, digitization of supply chain towards the small, uh, the small mom and pop shops, et cetera where we think that those can be very large businesses over time in those markets. Um, but, uh, but the general guidance is still for, for companies in those markets uh, to take a much more um, regional and global uh, perspective and not just think about your own market. Yeah, that's very interesting that it's still um, market-driven uh, as, as is, at the size of the market is, is still a big player um, but do you think uh, with COVID-19 and digitalization of, of a lot of things that we do now, there's more push for uh, companies to go global? I don't know if there's more push for it. I think, I think in general, like if you think about a market like Thailand as well, and you see that in Vietnam also, where because of language and because of culture, mm-hmm. um, you've, you've traditionally seen many founders that, 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 that look inward and that look at what they know and they know their own market. And, and, they, uh, and then they develop for their own market. And um, they've built products that tailor specifically to that market in their own language, with their own culture. And they sometimes build a phenomenally nice business in Thailand alone or in Vietnam alone. But then because they didn't have that outlook from the start, they kind of like struggle to then you know, even go regional, let alone global. And so one of the things we often urge founders to, to take that more, more global perspective and it also ties into the type of founders you then look for, because if there are founders that um, you know, have, have traveled abroad or studied abroad or worked abroad or have a bit of a global view, um, it's easier for them to take that perspective. It's harder if you've never had that experience to then understand how to operate in, in Singapore or in Australia or in the US for that matter, uh, and to cater to the taste and the likes and the dislikes of, of, of those consumers, right? Um, so I think that is, that is quite important. 
So you think the level of interest, as you said, because like Thailand and other countries similar to us in, in terms of market size are kind of stuck in between <laughs> because you said, you know, everyone, you know, goes to Singapore, as you said, you compare it to Delaware, you know, to set up business, to set up shop and then go regional or global. And then there's the big markets that, that are of interest in Indonesia. Um, and you mentioned that there is potential in the, you know, the markets are in between. How, how much of a potential do you think there is um, for countries like us in Thailand um, to develop further? Or do you think that it's still stagnant in a way? No, I, I think it's like markets are never stagnant and definitely not in Asia and Southeast Asia. Like they're, they're, there's amazing flux and growth and, and opportunity, which, which is the good news, right? Um, but it is about how you think about that. Like if you are a fund like Sequoia, where like we, we have a pretty high bar in terms of what, what growth needs to be or what company size needs to be or scale uh, with, with quite a few very large companies in the portfolio, um, we automatically gravitate towards founders that also think big. And that basically need, means that they need to think market first, right? And do I understand uh, how to go for a large target addressable market? And so one thing that I mentioned earlier is not just think about your own market, but think about you know, regional and global. The other thing that we're seeing is that, um, and we've seen that with Thai founders as well, is that they, they need to think about market size, not just, for example, as Bangkok, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm based in Bangkok and I've grown up there or I live there and I just think about the tier one city, um, it's only so big, like it's a big city, right? But in the grand scheme of things, yeah. it's, it's only so much. And so either I think regional or global, or I also have to think, what about tier two and three, tier three cities? How do I address the, the, the rest of the, of the pyramid? Like Bangkok is obviously the top in terms of urbanization, in terms of, in terms of density, in terms of, uh, like if you think about GDP per capita of the country versus of Bangkok, it's very different, right? And the lifestyle is very different. And so user behavior is very different. And so... Um, what, you, what you've seen in China a lot is that there's many, many services and, and companies that have become worth billions of dollars that have shied away from the tier one cities and only built for tier two or tier three, right? Um, and, and so uh, I think that is, that is interesting. And, and, um, uh, and so I would urge like Thai founders as well to think not just about that, but think about that long term. If you think about a company like Tilio in, in, uh, in Vietnam that, uh, that, that Search is backed and Sequoia is backed, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not just like Saigon or, or Hanoi. It is, it is trying to go uh, countrywide uh, across, across the country, uh, finding the small mom and pop child, digitizing them, um, and, and not just tapping into that bottom of the pyramid, but tapping into a much broader use case. Uh, a much broader part of the population. And I think that's important from a market size point of view. Yeah, and talking about that uh, market size and, and the, the approach to it, that's very interesting how you say that um, it's, it's not, it's about the market first. Um, can we leave Bangkok just for a minute or Thailand for a minute and go, go to Indonesia as uh, one of the markets that you, know, uh, you have been investing in, Gojek and the Indonesian market. And of course, one of the primary reasons is because of the market size. Um, are, what, what is the difference then in, in how the co-founders there think or, or uh, perceive scaling their businesses uh, compared to Thailand? And, and what can we learn from that market? 
well, 260 million people or so, right? And, and yes. so uh, in Thailand right now is what, 80, 90 million? <laughs> yeah. Correct? Around that, I think. Yeah. And so uh, again, and, and I'm not sure exactly about GDP per capita, it will be in the same zone time, it might be slightly higher. Um, but uh, you know, that, that, that basically means a market that is two, three X the size of, of Thailand, right? And so, so what can you learn from that? <laughs> very little, because it's very hard to suddenly turn your market into such a, such a big market. I think what you see though, is that at some stage there's a tipping point. At some stage when you see that a market is, 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 is big enough, uh, and that the, that the adoption is big enough. So I think one of the things that surprises with Indonesia is how quickly certain products went viral. Uh, we've seen it with Traveloka, we've seen it with, with, with Bojack, we've seen it with Tokopedia. We've seen how a Tokopedia has quickly realized that, that, that some of these markets, including Indonesia, are low trust societies. And so building trust into that marketplace from day one, in their case, using escrow and using other mechanisms, et cetera, was, was paramount. And so understanding your own market, your own dynamics, um, uh, playing into the things that, that drive a lot of adoption um, is I think what some of the founders over there have, have done well. And then there's this, this tipping point in the market at some point when the scale is such that people start believing like, hey, large businesses can be built, right? And, and so you see with a market like, in, like Indonesia, um, when, when Sequoia first invested in Tokopedia, um, and this was about seven years ago. If you think about it, right? Uh, you know, in in in, uh, in the U.S., you you have you have um, uh, Amazon and, and and eBay in the early days, two very large players. In, in in whatever Russia or Japan, you have two large players. And so you can always imagine, like a large market will have a large horizontal e-commerce winner, right? And then and then you know backing one of the of the few that there are is an easier thesis to invest in, right? Um, and so at some stage, the market is such, like you've actually seen that in, even in, in Vietnam already where you have Tiki and Sendo. Um, if you now ask me, what is the largest e-commerce player in, uh, in Thailand? Um, I'd struggle a bit because I don't think there, there's one or two big players that have emerged there and the adoption has not been uh, strong. Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, the same is true for Philippines to some extent where there's some, some change has been happening in the last one year or so where adoption is increasing. Uh, but we've seen that less, less in, in Thailand, right? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is when, when what you've seen in Philippines for a long time, and I'm not sure if Thailand is similar or not, but is where people were consuming a lot of content. They were reading a lot. There, were, there was a lot of social behavior, a lot of mobile behavior, but people were not transacting a lot. They might be buying their airline ticket online, but, but after that, not as much. Whether it was a trust issue or a convenience issue or just friction in the marketplaces that there were, but if e-commerce is not taking flight, then, then payments is not, and logistics is not, and many of the peripheral services around us are, are, are not growing as fast. So that then impacts the overall growth of the ecosystem. And I, I guess the same is true to some extent for the pilot. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, uh, digitalization, adoption, um, yeah, it does really depend on, on the market. Uh, here in Thailand, we have seen a lot of uh, increase in, in purchases online. I, I think it's a probably mixed between, because of the, the differences in age groups and you have an aging society, you know, the older you are, perhaps maybe you'd adopt more of buying things on TV or, you know, telesales, uh, but then the younger you, you are, you do see a lot of activities in um, purchases made on Facebook, uh, you know, platforms are outside of main platforms like uh, Lazada. 
and Shopee, which are booming right now. Um, what then is your advice for startups here in Thailand, you know, further on or extending what you said earlier about how we need to change our perspective and, and think regional and know, knowing our market. But during these troubling times, uh, it is a challenge. Um, what is your main advice for startups here in uh, surviving and also growing in 2021? Yeah, I think first of all, like, like don't, like in 2021, even though we're not fully recovered yet, like don't label it as like a crisis anymore, label it as an opportunity. There's many, like, and go for, like, if you ask me now, like, should you start a travel company? Yeah, you know, I'd be a bit more careful, right? And a bit more skeptical. So look, look, for, look for the segments in the markets that are actually offering the same or even more opportunity, right? Um, think about uh, either, like, think about it always for, go for a large market. And that large market might be, you know, Thailand, not just Bangkok, but broader use cases uh, catering to the entire uh, population, or which basically means specifically adopting to their two or three cities uh, and areas that are perhaps less, less crowded. Um, also then know that it's harder to reach those in a product that, that, that involves a lot of atoms, for example, installing hardware or feed on the street sales. So think about digital adoption. And that is what I think has, has, has been, been well done. Like we have a company in our portfolio called Bukukas uh, that is also tailoring, but then in Indonesia to, uh, to the, the, the small war rooms and mom and pop shops, right? Um, they acquire customers like, like consumers. There is no feed on the street or sales, right? It's, it's, it's an app that they can use. They start downloading it, they start using it, and they quickly get to whatever millions of merchants that are using it. So think about scalable ways to acquire customers think about not just consumer customers but also b2b and even small shop owners and merchants and whatnot um, and then for certain business business cases uh, or business models i should say uh think not just about thailand but think about overall market um, and and regional uh, etc but again it depends on what you're building so yeah that's interesting uh a question just came into my head um uh in in terms of digital adoption um in indonesia because of their vast population, I mean, here in Thailand, one of the challenges is um, reaching, as you said, you know, not the, the city people, but the farmers, the, the people who are, you know, in the provinces. Uh, how was how has uh, Indonesia been successful in getting those people who are not in urban areas to to adopt their technology? I guess I think I think the the biggest change in the last you know three to five years is that um, if you think about a farmer, if you think about a small shop owner, if you think about um, any whatever blue collar, um, any person in the industry, by the way, like, like five years ago, um, they never used technology. They didn't have a computer. They didn't, they didn't use software. They didn't have smartphones yet. Um, now with uh, obviously the, the, the smartphones have come down in price so much that pretty much everyone has one. And everyone has started using software. I started using apps, like not again, software, software on your, on your laptop, but uh, everyone is on Facebook or everyone's using Instagram or everyone uses WhatsApp. And so you see a lot of these companies emerge with tools that are, uh, that are leveraging that basic understanding of technology. And mm. so many of them start with integrations with WhatsApp, for example and leverage like the fact that people are already using WhatsApp and create groups around that or bots on that, um, then have their own app. 
um, where some of the user behavior is basically trained through how you use WhatsApp or how you use Facebook or, or uh, et cetera. And so like before it was super hard. You wanted to sell software to someone five years ago. They didn't have email. Um, they couldn't do anything, right? And now, you know, many software is not dependent on an email. It's, it's just a phone number. It's simple software. It's tying into WhatsApp or other tools that are out there. Um, and so that has changed a lot. And that has pretty much unlocked the entire population to services and tools uh, on their mobile, right? And, and I think that is sometimes overlooked that the companies that are going fast and unlocking the broader population are leverage, leveraging that in a very smart way. That's that is true. Definitely, I think we're going the right direction because in Thailand we have a lot of Facebook users and uh, we use Line, not WhatsApp, more here in the market. Yeah, but it's same, right? Yeah, but it's same concept, I think. And and uh, yeah, that's it's it's interesting, and and we'll probably be excited to see how it goes. Um, Lastly, uh, um, do you have any last comments for our viewers? I mean, our viewers range from you know small startups, medium-sized startups to corporates. Um, what is your last comment of advice for the, the rest of this year? <laughs> just, just go for it. Like, I, I think, again, like the, the rest of the year, like what I said earlier, last year has been tough for, for many folks. And uh, although we're not completely out of it, like it'll definitely be better. And we're seeing a lot of green shoots uh, coming up in, in businesses or in market opportunities, et cetera. So there's lots of opportunities uh, to, to pick from. And uh, in many of these markets, um, with a, a higher level of openness and keenness to adopt technology, um, you, you, I think you'll find users, whether it's B2B or consumers, being even more open to, to using technology of whatever sort. Uh, and so the, the opportunity is there to, to go for it. And again, like what I said earlier, just, just think about broaden your own horizon, broaden your own world in terms of how you think about the market and your market size and the size of the problem that you want to address. And um, I think there's tons of opportunities in Thailand and other markets in Southeast Asia for that matter. So, yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Peter. And we look forward to seeing you um, either on screen or off screen here in Bangkok again for our global summit. Thank you so Sounds much. Sounds good. I look forward to that. I always enjoyed my time in Bangkok. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Sauce, sparking innovative thoughts.